so this week I was breaking in new dress shoes, and um, any guys who know what that feels like, uh, the backs of my heels, I think it's just bone at this point. Um, so I'm going to swing this over here, and I'm going to sit on a bar stool today because standing is excruciating. Um, but I looked so good for my interviews, so there's that. Um, all right. Maybe I'm not the only one in here, but does anybody else get so many? I don't know if it's because we bought a house last year. I don't know if it's because I just signed up for Costco. What, what? Costco rocks. Also, super intimidating. Thanks for the signs in your store, Costco. I don't literally know where anything is, like nothing at all. Um, I don't know what it is, but I get so many credit card applications, right? I'm pre-approved for like a thousand of them. Anybody else in the room get these all the time? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was like, I wonder how many are sent out. And I found an article on Business Insider that said that the credit card industry sends out each year, right now, a right around or a little bit above four billion advertising mailers a year. That is enough if you do the math. For every single person, man, woman, child in America to get over 20 advertising mailers each. So you do the math for your household. That's why you get one, like more than one a week, right? Uh, that's not even the most they've ever sent. Before 2008 in the financial crisis, the industry was sending more than 8 billion mailers advertising credit cards to households across America. And that means that if you were over the age of 18 and you, were, you had not signed up for a credit card yet, you were likely receiving somewhere around 60 to 80 mailers a year trying to get you to sign up for credit cards. And what do they always say, right? They say pre-approved. You know, they're, they're trying to sell you on this idea that everything you want, maybe not even everything, just that thing that you want that costs a bit more than you have in your bank account, it is just, it's right there. It's right there. And if you just sign on the dotted line, it, we'll make it happen. Your wildest dreams or your most mediocre dreams can come true if you just sign on the dotted line and pay it back later, right? And who cares about later, right? Um, the way that, that our world talks about prosperity is very you-focused. Do you want to get rich? Do you want to get rich quick? Get the life that you deserve. You need this, don't you? Don't you want a life like this? You, 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 you. When we talk about prosperity, our, our minds might go immediately to us, to me, to myself and my little world. And there's a lot that the Bible says about prosperity, about blessings in general, but specifically about being prosperous. And, and sometimes the Christian faith does a poor job of handling those texts. Um, one of the ones that gets lifted up a lot when we talk about what it means to be prosperous is the story of, we said Abraham and Sarah in the video, really it's the story though of Abram and Sarai before they're Abraham and Sarah. They have this name change that we're going to actually end on today. Today we're going to look at the story of before they were Abraham and Sarah, back when they were Abram and Sarai. Uh, two people who, you know, Abram comes from a decent family with some modest land, and, you know, his place in the Bible comes pretty early in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 12 um, to catch you up if you're not familiar, right? Uh, creation story, Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel are their kids. Cain kills Abel. Whoops, not a good thing. World continues to devolve until we get to Noah's story, and then God floods the earth and saves Noah and his family and two of every animal and gives every nursery in America something to put on their walls. Uh, and then... 
Uh, and then some more genealogy stuff happens until they try to build a tower of Babel, to build a tower tall enough to reach God, and then God brings it down, and then there's some more genealogy stuff, and then Abram. Right? So it's, it's pretty early on in the story of the Bible. Um, and God meets Abram in this place where he's living a life that is fine, but not the life that he wants. And he's, God's going to call him into something pretty radical. And Abram, in response, is going to do some pretty terrible things because of what he thinks he hears God saying. And today I want us to focus on what Abram hears God saying. Because there are some times in the Old Testament when characters will hear God say something again and again like Abram does. God is going to extend a covenant to him three times this morning. And each time that covenant is going to sound a little bit different. And the question for us becomes, did God change the covenant? Or did Abram begin to hear the covenant differently? Because I don't know that God necessarily changed the covenant time and time again. I think God's pretty consistent. Yeah? I think the way that we hear God can change depending on our maturity, on our level of discipline, on where we are in life, what we ate for breakfast that morning. Um, So let's dig in. I'm going to tell you, the story of Abram is a tough one. If you think that we're about to get into the fun Sunday school story of when Abraham and Sarah got to have a kid when they didn't think they could have a kid and it was just so great, that's not what we're about to read. That comes after what we're going to read. We're going to read the stuff that gets them to that place, and it's hard, and there's some tough stuff in here, and I know that we have some little ones in the room, so I'm going to go ahead and say this too. There are times when I'm talking this morning that I'm not going to use certain language because I'm aware that we have little ones and thrive at times, um, but I want us to realize the gravity of the things that are being talked about in this text. So um, when you hear words like someone was taken by somebody else, the Bible frequently uses those words to describe something more intimate and in this case wrong than just taken by the arm, yeah? So um, I'll point those out when we get to them, but I just want to give parents a word of, you know, it's okay. I'm not going to cross any boundaries today. So uh, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So do you hear, do you hear what Abram hears? Do you hear how much you is being mentioned? I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. So Abram hears this covenant with God. Can you imagine hearing this from God? I mean, there have been times in my life where I felt kind of lost and kind of wandering. I never got a message quite like that. Scott, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to make your name great. I am here for you. The God of the universe is here for you. Feels good. I mean, how would you walk through life at that point? I mean, you're, you would walk so confidently through life. Um, and then something weird happens. So he's just been told that God's going to bless him more than anybody else Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. Well, that's not supposed to happen. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, as an outsider, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, 
I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. Oh, good for you, Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. It's weird. God didn't like that too much. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. Do you understand what just happened? Abram hears a covenant from God saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to take care of you. I've got your back. And a famine comes. Famines are bad. When we think that God's about to bless us and a famine comes, have you ever been in a position of life where you thought things were finally going to start turning around and then a famine came? That's hard. Puts us in a position of fear. Puts us in a position of scarcity mindset. So Abram goes to Egypt, and he's afraid. He's already, all that trust, whatever trust he had in God has just flown out the window. And he's scared. And he's not scared for his wife. Notice he doesn't say, honey, I'm so sorry. I think something terrible is about to happen to you. What can I do to keep this from happening? Who is Abram concerned about? Himself. Which makes sense, because who did God promise to bless? Abram. If Abram's not safe, then how will any blessing happen? So I've got to keep numero uno very safe. And in order to do that, I'm going to need to sell my wife to the highest bidder who happens to be Pharaoh. I mean, here's the crazy thing. Abram gets a lot of stuff in return, doesn't he? He prospers a lot because of this awful decision that he makes. What's it say? He gets sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, camels. I mean, good Lord, that's quite the haul. For what in exchange? I'm telling you guys, I don't like Abram. I've wrestled with this scripture all week, and and at this point, I'm reading this story, and I'm just thinking, this is who you want to work with, God? This guy? When God promises prosperity, do we hear self-preservation? See, this is the problem with thinking prosperity and blessings are all about me. It's because if I'm not in the picture, <laughs> then who cares? <laughs> if it's all about me, then I've got to look out for myself. I've got to make sure that I'm safe and secure, that my needs are met, that my desires are met, and everyone else, including the people who are supposed to be so close that they're above me, everybody else, who cares? Everyone else is is a chip to be played. 
And, and it can be really easy for us to look at this story and, and to read what Abram does and go, gosh, that's terrible. How could Abram do this to his wife? And my question for you is, how many marriages have you seen end because of workaholism? How many families have you seen broken because someone just could not get out of the office before seven? We do a lot of things in the name of prosperity. So it's easy to point the finger at Abram and say, how could you sell your wife for donkeys and oxen and sheep and slaves and camels? I mean, how could you do that? But my question for you, Dallas, my question for me is what am I willing to sacrifice for a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more? Who am I willing to sacrifice for a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more? It's easy to point the finger at Abram, but the reality is we struggle with this today. We struggle with this today. Are you willing to sacrifice your marriage so that you get a better corner office? Are you willing to sacrifice your relationship with your kids so that your boss knows you're a hard worker? Is it worth it? What if you get that car that you want, the lake house that you want, the boat that you want, the second house that you want, the third house that you want? Is it worth it? Do you think Abram thought it was worth it? When we hear God promising prosperity, do we really hear self-preservation? The problem with thinking prosperity and blessings all about me is that everyone else and everything else becomes a chip on the table. Let's keep reading. Don't worry, it gets worse. After these things, this is picking up in chapter 15, verse 1. So in between this and what happened, if you did the math, we just skipped a couple chapters. Um, basically, uh, he and his, his family and his nephew Lot, uh, they go to this land that God sends them to. He and Lot divide it up between themselves. Then there's this really bizarre, like, uh, Game of Thrones-style, like, war of these 12 tribal kings. And there's, like, a whole lot there to unpack that we're going to, whoop, skip right over. And we're going to land in chapter 15 um, that for the next time that, that God extends this covenant to Abram. It says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. That's interesting. The problem last time was that Abram was afraid. So it's almost like God is looking into his soul. It's weird how that works. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? <laughs> what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, this is, he's continuing, you've given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, he said, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then we continue on. I mean, can you imagine, God walks you outside not in Dallas. You're out in somewhere, you know, that you can actually see stars. If you do this in Dallas, count the stars. One. Okay. You go far outside, you see these stars. Abram, trust me, man. This, that, this is your family. This is what it's going to look like. Try to see the big picture for me. So he has this amazing experience, and then we pick up in chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. That trust starts to, before there was a famine, 
Now she's bearing no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. Hagar probably came with them out of Egypt when she was one of the slaves that was given to him for what he did to Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's blaming God for this. Go into my slave girl. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So, real quickly, there's a lot of reasons to come in this, what I'm about to read, to, to, to really not like Sarai or Abram. This is not necessarily one of them. Unfortunately, this was a very common practice in this time and place in history. Um, you know, you had to carry on the family line. They're turning to what was, at the time, sort of your common sense wisdom of the day. If you couldn't have children, then you would use slaves to bear children on your behalf, um, which is a terrible practice, uh, but it, don't worry, it does get worse. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Can you imagine how Hagar felt? Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai is really upset that Hagar's just not going with it. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Oh, very caring. Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. This isn't going to be on the screens, but I want to keep reading because this is where it starts to get better. Um, Angel of the Lord, it says, found her, found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. So they had kicked, Hagar runs away into the wilderness. It's a harsh place if you've ever been in the wilderness in the Middle East, harsh place. And the angel said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offering that they cannot be counted for multitude. The language used here is an even greater number than the number being promised to Abram and Sarai. The angel of the Lord is promising this to a slave girl that Abram and Sarai never even call by name, by the way, if you notice that. The angel names her Hagar. No one else around her does. And God sees her, and God says, that covenant I made with them, well, guess what? It just got a hundred times over for you. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, a wild donkey of a man, with his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So because of what Abram and Sarai have done, this boy is going to come into the world with a single mom who's got nothing to offer, and he's going to have the hardest life imaginable, but God's still going to find a way to redeem it and create multitudes and multitudes and multitudes out of this young man. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy, for she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? You know that Hagar is the first person in the Bible to name God. Hagar, the woman that they couldn't even remember her name. Therefore, the well was called, a long word I can't pronounce, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. 
Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. When God promises prosperity, do we hear, is what we really hear, self-serving. See, here's one thing I absolutely believe, that when God leads us to places, when God promises us thing that, that things that we're, we're expected to have agency on our own. What I mean by that is that we're expected to do things. We're not supposed to just sit idly by and just wait for everything to fall into our lap. I think that God expects us to be slightly more active than that, yeah? Um, the problem becomes when we... Uh, act without any trust in God, when we decide that we actually have a better plan than God does, that we're going to figure this out better than God could possibly figure out, and we really kind of cut God out of the equation. And that's exactly what happens here with Abram and Sarai. Abram has this amazing revelatory moment with God where God leads him outside to see, I mean, billions of stars and says, this is going to be your family. This is the story I have planned for you if you will trust in me. And Abram says, great. And then a couple minutes pass and he forgets. It's all about that trust. And he and Sarah go, well, you know what they did down the street? You know, they had the same issue. We should probably just do that because, you know, God's not going to give me any kids anyways. And they look around and remember, everybody's a chip on the table. And so she says, how about that slave girl there? Do you see how little you think of the people around you when you think prosperity is all about yourself? Do you see how it dehumanizes the world around you? What about that slave girl over there? Why don't you just take her? And then when that slave girl decides to have a little bit of agency for herself and says, you know what, I don't appreciate this, Sarai says, fine, well, you can get out of here, you ungrateful little jerk. I mean, really. I mean, if I were to stop here with Abram and Sarai, would you expect, as someone who's new to the Bible, that they have a happy ending? I mean, Really? These sound like the kinds of people that God's wrath burns hot against. And yes, these are the people that God is tirelessly working with. Reagan brought this up last week. Let's, let's hammer it home again. If you think that God is too good to work with someone like you, you need to get in touch with Abram and Sarai. I don't know depravity like this. Not in my life. I don't know what it means to treat people this way. I mean, I have a little bit. There are times, yes, that I, that I can dehumanize the people around me. But good Lord, I read the story, I go, man, I guess God can use me. And God can use people that I don't understand. God can work through people like you and me at our very worst because God can use Abram and Sarah because these people are terrible. And not only that, God can take our mistakes and redeem them. God meets Hagar in the wilderness and says, that covenant that I'm making with Abram, I'm extending that to you, and I'm going to make multitudes and multitudes. And here's the craziest thing. If then we look through this through the lens of Jesus at Easter, we know that these multitudes that come through Ishmael, yes, they have a hard existence right now, but these multitudes and multitudes are going to be part of the family of faith when God comes down to fix everything in the end. Like it, we're setting up such an enormous redemption story in chapter 16 of Genesis that's not going to get paid off for books upon books upon books. This is the way that God sees the big picture, and we're so focused on ourselves. When we hear prosperity, do we really hear, uh, I'm going to look out for me, I'm going to make everyone a chip on the table, I'm going to look to serve my own best interest, because guys, let me tell you, we're capable of some pretty terrible stuff when that's our mentality. 
I haven't done what Abram and Sarah have done, but I've done some terrible things in the, in the name of making my life better. We all have. And so what do we do about this? You go, okay, Scott, you brought us pretty low. Life is terrible. Abram and Sarah are terrible. How does God redeem this concept of blessing for them? And how can God redeem this concept of blessing and prosperity for us? The good news this morning is that Abram and Sarai's story is not over, and they are not a lost cause. And yes, they have done some terrible things. And God's still going to meet them with grace. Beginning in chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, finally assuming a position of humility. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. Did you notice how this covenant sounded different than before? And the first covenant sounds like this. At first, Abram hears God saying, I'm going to make you great. That's what we all want to hear. The second time, he hears God saying, I'm going to make you great, and you're going to have a family to share in your greatness. Because who doesn't want a cheerleading squad? And then lastly, God says, I'm going to make you an ancestor to greatness. Do you notice the shift? Do you notice the shift in how Abram hears this covenant? His name shifts too, and his name sums up the shift in the covenant. Abram translates to mean exalted father. It's quite the name to have, isn't it? (laughs) Exalted father. Abraham means father of multitudes. The shift being exalted father, who's my life about? It's about me. Your job is literally to exalt me. That's a fantastic name. Scott means someone from Scotland. I didn't luck out. Abraham means father of multitudes. What is my life about at that point? Everything else around me. My life is not my own. My life is to be an ancestor. I love the way that this text says that, that God promises that Abraham will be an ancestor to multitudes, an ancestor to greatness, an ancestor to kings. No longer is Abraham the receiver of these things. Abraham is simply a conduit. He is an ancestor. He is the preparer. He's the one that does the hard work today so that greatness can come about tomorrow. When God promises prosperity, can we allow ourselves to hear selflessness? Now, this is hard because this flies in the face of how we talk about prosperity in the world. This flies in the face of the mailers you're going to get from the credit card companies. 
When we hear prosperity, can we adopt an Abraham mindset? Can we allow our hearts to be transformed? Can we be born again as we are in the waters of baptism, as we are every day that we wash ourselves anew in the grace of God? Can we allow ourselves to hear prosperity, not for our sake, but for the sake of everybody around us? Can we stop seeing people as chips on a table and rather people to be loved? Can we stop dehumanizing the people around us and instead give them names and give them stories and give them weight? Can we value people over prosperity? Can we value people over power? Can we value people over money, over corner offices, over whatever it is that we think is more important? Can we do the hard work today of an ancestor so that the generations to come after can reap those rewards and we may never get anything back in the process? That's the kind of prosperity that God preaches about and teaches about and covenants with us about and loves about. That's the kind of prosperity that we need. So, do you hear God saying, I want to make you rich? Or do you hear God saying, I want to make your life enriched? Do you hear God saying, I want everyone to bless you? Or do you hear God saying, I want to bless everyone through you? Do you hear God saying, your life is going to be amazing? Or do you hear God saying, your life is going to be meaningful? first three, they, 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 they sound nice, but if you followed them for any length of time, you, you know that they're so shallow thin and they lead nowhere. And the last three, I want to enrich your world. I want to bless everyone through you. I want your life to be meaningful. That will create a life for you that will literally become blessing after blessing, prosperity after prosperity, not for yourself, but for the people, the family, the children, your friends, your community, the world around you. And God pulls you outside and looks at the night skies and says, look at these blessings. They're going to number the stars. I dare you to count them. I dare you to count them. Let us pray. As I pray this morning, we're going to receive communion in a moment. Sorry, you just bowed your heads. You can keep them bowed or looked at me. This could be awkward. I don't know. Um, we're going to have communion. I know that a lot of our families are enjoying getting to take their kids for communion. So if you want to go and, and get your child out of, out of uh, Sunday school or the nursery, um, feel free to at this time. Um, it won't be disruptive, I promise. And then we'll continue in worship and we'll take communion in just a little bit. Let's pray. God of our ancestors. God of blessing, God of prosperity, God of Hagar and Ishmael, God of Sarai and Sarah, of Abram and Abraham, God of Pharaoh, God of the wilderness, God of Canaan, God of the places we've been and the places we've yet to go, God of us. Extend the covenant to us that you extend to Abraham. A covenant that might change us. That might change the way we walk through this world, the way that we see this world, the way that we see the people living in this world, your children, your daughters and sons, whom you name and whom you love. God, give us the courage and the boldness 
to live a life of meaning, a life as an ancestor, a life that is not about ourselves, but is about everyone around us, a life that prepares the way for glory and greatness, a life that prepares the way for prosperity, a life that prepares the way for your love. Every time we get a credit card mailer in the mail, let us remember that what you promise us is not that whatever little desires we have are right within reach, but what you promise us is that if we commit our lives to your sake and we commit our lives to your glory, that you will cause blessing after blessing as a result and those will number the stars, that our actions have meaning and worth. That when we love in your name, that love goes on. When we live in your name, that life goes on. Call us away from our empty pursuits. Call us to a life that is meaningful, a life that is led by you. Call us to the life of an ancestor in your name. All this we pray in the name of your son who blesses and redeems us all his name. Amen.